Thank you for uh, the songs that you shared with us and your thoughts this morning, Megan. Um, as she said, uh, Susie could have stayed home and, and worried. Instead, she came here to worship. And I could have sworn that Megan was going to say, Susie could have stayed home to worry, but instead she came here to worry. <laughs> but, but, it's something that is so wonderful about community and worship and friendship, is that there is no better group to worry with. And there is no better God to listen to our worries and our concerns. And as much as we try to put our own selves and worries and concerns aside, I want you to know that to be emotionally honest with God, you have to bring those things to him. And some of your most powerful moments of worship you might find in those times where you are completely a mess in front of God. And you allow his community and his love to wash over you. So that is a wonderful thing that we can be here together for that, isn't it? Yeah. And I, for one, am grateful. <clears throat> in the series that we're in, we find ourselves in the life of Jacob, and, and the life of Jacob is not a well-ordered life. It is a messy and chaotic story, and it's messy right from the start, and it's just going to keep getting messier. Some of the things that happen in the life of Jacob are just unbelievable. How can people do this to one another? How can someone find himself in this position over and over and over again? In some ways, the story of Jacob is a little bit like a soap opera. Are any of you soap opera watchers or were at one time in your life or maybe you call them your stories? Anyone? Uh, Nisha has never really watched soap operas, but she likes soapy TV shows like Scandal. Anyone watch any of that sort of stuff? It's a lot like the title. There's a lot of scandal in that show. <clears throat> so as a way to prepare us for what we are going to read this morning, here are some of the most well-known Plot lines from soap operas. Bad guy Clint kidnapped Kevin, then tortured and traumatized him just like his abusive father, Tom. Once Kevin's mental state was at an all-time low, Clint forced him into robbing banks while wearing a giant chipmunk head. The scam came to an end when Clint died of a heart attack, and Kevin wondered if he should have killed him. This one comes from the bold and the beautiful, which is how we could describe ourselves this morning. <laughs> Pam's rivalry with Donna reached its peak when she lured her nemesis to a cabin and held her at gunpoint. But Pam switched up her plan when she noticed a bear outside. She knocked Donna out, tied her to a chair, and doused her with honey, then enticed the bear inside for a snack. Fortunately, Donna was saved by Owen. <laughs> Death by bear. That's, that's pretty rough. From Guiding Light, after Reva washed up on an island and made her way to a phone, she called home and heard her own voice on the other end. It turned out to be 
that Josh had her husband had accidentally concocted a clone of the woman he loved and fell for her hook, line, and sinker. The real Reva eventually made her way back home and reunited with Josh while her clone turned into her long-lost cousin, Dolly. But wait. If you order today, you can get James E. Riley, uh, who wrote a wild tale for Merlina in 1995 when he had the good doctor suddenly become possessed by the devil. The Days of Our Lives story took viewers on a wild ride as Marlena spoke in a demonic voice, levitated, and at one point turned into a jaguar. I don't know. Last one here for us this morning. From Days of Our Lives. A killing spree rocked the U.S. soap in 2000, culminating in the perpetrator, Marlena, uh, choking her final victim with a donut. The dead characters were subsequently revived and marooned on an island. And then the killer was revealed to be someone else, because why not? <laughs> uh, so Jacob's story carries some of these hard-to-believe details. Some of these things that you have seen uh, us try to describe culturally in these entertainment modules that give us the opportunity to see the weirdest and the worst that people can possibly do. So let's jump back into his story. And Isaac and Rebecca would have two sons given to them by God. If you remember, uh, they were married. Rebecca couldn't have children. Isaac prayed to God that they would be able to have children. And God says, you are going to have twins. And so we know from the beginning of the story that God is on some level concocting this stew that we have in front of us. And he says that the boys will not be friends, but that they will be rivals, that there are two nations in her womb that are wrestling even in that you know, pre-infant state. So much so that they are causing Rebecca great discomfort, and she cries out to God, why is this happening to me? At, at birth, these children that God had made were wrestling with one another, even struggling to get out first. And I don't know what move Esau pulled on Jacob, but Esau came out first, and Jacob, as he comes out behind him, was grasping at the heel of Esau. And we must remember that in shaping this story as he does, that God was really taking this, uh, even culturally for the time, in a direction that was unexpected. He said that it was the second son, Jacob, and not the older son, Esau, who would be the one who inherits the promise given to their grandfather, Abraham. So by doing this, God rejected the standard practice of the world at the time, which said it was the oldest son who would, see, who would receive either the greatest part of the inheritance or the most part of the inheritance or sometimes even the whole inheritance itself with nothing left for the others. And God said, in this case, the oldest would not inherit everything, but the younger would. And in so doing, he's telling us Something that, that the way we want things to go or the structures that we have put in place, God doesn't have to pay attention to those things that we have set up as the norm. In fact, sometimes God will work in the most unexpected ways. 
In the meantime, Rebecca and Isaac uh, had chosen sides. Uh, so Isaac loved his oldest Esau, Rebecca loved Jacob, and no one was above the fray or the conflict. And we're going to see this especially in the story that we are covering today. But there's something I want you to sort of ask yourself as we go through this this morning. Because the story of Jacob, of Isaac, Rebecca, and Esau is a really interesting study in how our lives and choices interact with the will of God. And what we see is probably more unconventional different than what we expect to be part of the Bible story. But at the same time, I feel like it's more real to life as we know it. That we are constantly struggling to interact with the will of God, that God's will will happen, but then how do the choices and the decisions that we make, do they affect God's will? Do they change the course? How does all of this work? It's a big, big question. But this story is the story of how God is present in the midst of weird decisions and trials and circumstances. So, in the first story that we looked at last week, we learned all of these things about Jacob and Esau. And we learned some uh, kind of interesting things specifically about those two boys. We know that Esau was red and hairy, even as a baby, which is sort of terrifying. And uh, that Jacob was the heel grabber. Um, His name means heel and and one who kicks his way out or is the supplanter. And as we said last week, another way to interpret it would be he who grasps the heel, which is a Hebrew idiom for one who deceives. So we know about him that he is going to continue reaching for more and wanting more and trying to get more for himself. And we know that Esau looks like some sort of raw <laughs> puppy. I don't know. I don't even know how to describe him. This, this little hairy red person. How about that? Does that sound fair? I'm a wordsmith, you know. So let's see how this plays out. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Genesis chapter 25. And we're going to start in verse 27. The boys grew up, and Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay at home among the tents. Isaac, who had a taste for a wild game, loved Esau, but Rebekah loved Jacob. Once when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came in from the open country famished. He said to Jacob, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. Jacob replied, first, sell me your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is a birthright to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him selling his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and then got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. What a great introduction to these two young men. We are impressed right off the bat. So the first question is, 
Within this story we just read, who do you like? No one. No, but consider this for a moment. There is no one likable in this story. Not even the parents, as they are mentioned leading into this, are likable. No one is likable. <laughs> yeah. Stew is a heavy theme in this, in this chapter, by the way. While it might be easy, you know, the, 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 the table has been set for us to view Jacob as someone who is not totally honest. But within this story, he basically acts as we would expect him to do as the heel grabber. But the person we didn't really know anything about was Esau. And within this story, who looks the worst out of the two of them? Jacob or Esau? It has to be Esau. Esau had been out all day and he returned home and he was hungry. Uh, Jacob had this stew and Esau asked him for something, but Jacob said no because he's his brother. <clears throat> and, but Esau insisted that he needed some of the stew, so Jacob made a ridiculous offer. You give me your birthright. And I will give you a bowl of stew. Now, what do we already know is going to happen? We already know that the inheritance is going to go to whom? To Jacob, right? But Jacob is kind of not really nice about getting to that place with Esau. He gets there because... He plays on his brother's weakness, and his brother doesn't even realize, or even worse, care about what is happening. Now again, to be clear about what the birthright is, it is the inheritance that the father passes down, first to his oldest son, and then to any others in the family. So in Israel, a father would give something to all of his sons, but the firstborn he would give a double portion. So in this case, Esau would get two-thirds of his father's estate, and Jacob would get one-third. So by asking for Esau's birthright, what is Jacob asking for? Everything. Will you give me everything? All that will come will be mine. And in return, you get this bowl of lentil soup and some, and some bread, to be fair, <laughs> to be fair. <laughs> well, never mind, I can't preach the rest of the sermon anymore. <laughs> God had already made his choice, and we know what will happen, but here's what kind of fascinates me about this, and we're going to see this continue. These two brothers go through this process individually, showing their own character as if they are driving the story themselves. Is God behind Jacob deceiving Esau? Is God behind Esau being so impatient and dramatic that he's willing to do these things? And it's odd because this whole interaction happens as if there is no one in the world except the two of them. 
Their parents don't matter. What God has said doesn't matter. Everything goes away. And what we are left with is these two brothers bargaining for the future of God's people over a dinner table and a bowl of stew and bread. Now, if Esau were sensible, he would have laughed in his brother's face, walked away, and found something else to eat. But Esau was not sensible. Instead, he responded with the classic line, I'm about to die. (laughs) What is he, eight years old? Like, how dramatic can you be? Did Jacob have all of the food in the entire camp right there in that one tent in this one bowl of soup? No. He didn't. We need to grasp this. Esau could have gone probably almost anywhere in the camp and found something to eat. All he would have had to do was leave the tent and find the next best thing. But he doesn't. And what he said after this is even worse than that dramatic moment he says, What good is a birthright to me? Implying that he is literally going to die. And therefore, his future does not matter. He was being so dramatic, he believed he could not make it. So he elevated being fed right in that moment over his entire future. All of it. Jacob, however wanted the future that by societal norms he was not entitled to. He wanted what God had promised his family, and he got his brother to give it to him for a bowl of soup. And because of this episode, the wheel starts rolling for the birthright to be passed from the older brother to the younger, and God's plan was beginning to play out. And what we see is that Jacob is not uh, totally above board. We're not even sure yet whether we can call him a decent person, but he knew that Esau was not going to die. He knew that Esau could find food somewhere else. He knew that his brother didn't care very much about the future. And Jacob cared more. So we use this to his advantage. So another way to look at this might be that Jacob understood that God's promises were actually going to happen. And he didn't want to be in the back seat for God's fulfillment of these things. So yes, he doesn't do this in a completely honest way. But Esau committed the greater sin because he despised the Bible says, what God had for him. And he wasn't willing to wait to get there. He wanted God's blessing when? Now, in the form of this meal. And this is what is so powerful about this example. He could hardly get less for what he gave up. You see that? He could hardly get less for what he gave up, which was so enormous that this bowl of soup is, quite frankly, ridiculous. But he acts in this way. And this judgment was passed on him. 
that who God was going to make him was not enough for him to wait on. As difficult as that whole scene is, it's really not the most troubling aspect of this story. As calculating as Jacob was, it was nothing compared to what happens next. So allow me to paraphrase the story a little bit in the interest of time. If you want to look at this passage in its entirety, you can turn over to Genesis 27, uh, which gives you the whole layout of the land. Now, as we learned earlier, Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. And maybe at that point in their relationship, it was sort of a benign thing for them. But before we get to 27, let's look at this one short episode in 20, uh, Genesis 26, verses 7 through 11. And, and this is what happens here. When the men of that place, they were traveling um, uh, through uh, this, this foreign territory to get to where they were supposed to go. When the men of that place asked Isaac about his wife, Rebecca, he said, she is my sister, because he was afraid to say she is my wife. He thought, the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca because she is beautiful. Does this sound familiar to anyone? When Isaac had been there a long time, Abimelech king of the Philistines looked down from a window and saw Isaac caressing his wife, Rebekah. So Abimelech summoned Isaac and said, she is really your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? That's just weird. That's my comment in there. Isaac answered him, because I thought I might lose my life on account of her. Then Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the men might well have slept with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech gave orders to all the people, anyone who harms this man or his wife shall surely, shall surely be put to death. So this, is, of course, is the same thing that we saw Abraham do with Sarah as they were traveling through these territories. And if anyone looked at Sarah, Abraham was immediately afraid for himself and basically offers Sarah up to anyone as long as he doesn't get hurt. And Isaac does the same thing. She's too beautiful. You know what's going to happen? I'm going to get hurt. So instead, I am going to call her my sister. Now, just for a moment of speculation, how do you think Rebecca felt about this? I think we know how Rebecca felt because of what happens next. For him to go in there and not offer her the protection of their, of their marriage is not a good look for him or for their family or for any part of this. It was coming to the end of Isaac's life, and his eyes were failing him, and he knew that he was not going to live much longer. He wanted to bring everything to the proper close, as he should, so he called Esau his oldest son, who he loved, so that he could give Esau his blessing. Now, wait a minute. Esau's already passed the blessing on. God has already said it's going to be Jacob's. But what is Isaac going to do? Give it to Esau. All right? The whole process that Isaac was embarking on here is a little bit foreign to us, but the blessing should be understood as a world-transforming act. Because not only do you receive all of the stuff, 
right? You receive the direct blessing from God. That your life would be good and prosperous and fruitful and that things would go your way and that God would be on your side. But something you note is that in spite of the earlier things, Again, that Isaac is wanting to pass this on to Esau. So he instructed Esau to go out to kill something, which is what he's good at, cook it, and come back for the blessing. So Esau Esau exits stage left. Rebekah got word of this, and she did not want Esau to receive the blessing over Jacob. So she instructed Jacob to bring her two young goats, and she would make what Isaac was asking for, this tasty food, and Jacob could take his father the food and received the blessing. And Jacob at that point raises his hand and says, there's just one problem. Esau's hairy like an animal. And I am not. So Rebecca says, no problem. I will put goat skins over you, which makes me wonder, how hairy is Esau? puts goat skins on him, and and then dresses him up in Esau's clothes so that he can go in. And Jacob, to his credit, says, is this a good idea? And Rebekah says, I will take whatever curse you might receive if you are caught. Okay, just just a moment here. Uh, What would you say is the defining characteristic trait characteristic trait of this family deception dysfunctional probably to the nth degree Um, self-motivated actions certainly Uh, can we throw on that impulsive too? people making these sort of split decisions that (laughs) have these grand effects in the long run So she made the food, got Esau's best clothes, and put them on Jacob. She then took some of the goat skin and put it on Jacob's arms and hands so that he would appear hairy. She then sent him to meet with Isaac. And Isaac calls him over, and and he realizes, you know, that things are a little hinky, but he goes forward with it. He felt the goat skins. He smelled the clothes. would smell like Esau. We have to believe that Esau at least partly smells like an animal. And even though he was hearing Jacob's voice, he knew that it must be Esau, so he decides to give his blessing. So to recap, he tried to call in his son that he loved more to give him the blessing, even though that ship has mostly sailed. Rebecca talks her younger son into deceiving her blind husband so that he might receive the reward and offers to take whatever curse comes on her. This is messed up. So from Genesis 27, verses 26 through 29. Then his father Isaac said to Jacob, dressed as goat man, Come here, my son, and kiss me. So he went to him and kissed him. When Isaac caught the smell of his clothes, he blessed him and said, Ah, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed. I'm not sure how he got that from goatskins, but you know. May God give you heaven's dew and earth's richness, an abundant of grain and new wine. May nations serve you and peoples bow down to you. 
Be Lord over your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. This blessing is no joke. It promises the blessings of the earth, power over other nations, power over the family, protection of the highest level, all sponsored by God. Jacob exits the scene. Esau returns with the food for Isaac. Again, food was Esau's undoing. And Isaac realized that something was wrong when Esau comes back. So in verses 33 through, 30, through 40, I'm sorry, we have this exchange. Isaac trembled violently and said, Who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came, and I blessed him, and indeed he will be blessed. When Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and bitter cry and said to his father, Bless me, me too, my father. But he said, Your brother came deceitfully and took your blessing. Esau said, Isn't he rightly named Jacob, the deceiver, the grasper? This is the second time he has taken advantage of me. He took my birthright, and now he's taken my blessing. Then he asked, haven't you reserved any blessing for me? Isaac answered, Esau, I have made him lord over you, and have made all his relatives his servants, and I have sustained him with grain and new wine, so what can I possibly do for you? Esau said to his father, do you have only one blessing, my father? Bless me too, my father. Then Esau wept aloud. His father Isaac answered him, Your dwelling will be away from the earth's richness, away from the dew of heaven above. You will live by the sword and you will serve your brother, but when you grow restless, you will throw his yoke from off your neck. Every parent wants to fix things and make it right for their children especially if you have a favorite, which I don't. Video, I don't have a favorite. But Isaac was rendered impotent by what had already gone on and what had already happened. So he almost, he almost desperately tries to tell Esau something. And I wonder if Esau wished he hadn't have asked based on what Isaac says to him. Would it have been better not to know? But Isaac couldn't take back from Jacob. But there was hope at the end that Esau might throw off this thing that has been put on him. And in what what might be the greatest biblical understatement of all time, the Bible tells us that Esau held a grudge against Jacob, and plotted to kill him. So Rebecca, who apparently pretty often listens at tent doors, overheard this and sent Jacob away to live with her brother Laban, because, you know, family can be trusted. And then she closes the chapter with these thoughts. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, I'm disgusted with living because of these Hittite women which is where he's going to be with Laban. 
If Jacob takes a wife from among the women of this land, from Hittite women like these, my life will not be worth living. Sounds a little like Esau. Sounds a little like something we have heard within that family. So God said what was going to happen. Two nations, the oldest will serve the youngest, and they take the messiest possible path to get to that place. They explored every channel off of that path and made their own decisions. Everyone was acting in their own interests, independent of God, and this really made God's plan look like clowns piling out of a car. Yet, at the end, what has happened? Jacob has received the blessing, and he has to run for his life because of how he received the blessing. But he still is the one. He's the one that God said would receive these things. So what do we do with this? You know, you watch a soap opera, and you can walk away from it. Because after all, that's not real life. But this story feels like something we can't just dismiss so easily. There's something comforting to me, and maybe to you as well, that even though the way was so scattered and ugly, that in the end, God's will was still accomplished. Why is that encouraging? Well, we've seen people make the most selfish and terrible decisions along this way. We've seen people act horribly to one another. And one of the great things about this story is that the Bible account doesn't apologize for any of it. We have very few words of judgment within this story. We might try to explain it away to move it into a space that we are more comfortable with, but the story itself does not create that space. Instead, it tells us something important, and that is this. The plan of God will work in spite of deficiencies in human character and in spite of our inclination to go our own way. Listen, you or anyone else you know or think of cannot change the path of the will of God. It can't. It won't. Because God is God and we are not. And while he has to work with us to get us to the place that we need to be, sometimes the path we choose to get to those places smell too much like goats and not enough like the lamb. And though the characters went their own ways, They are all bringing about the story of God in the most human way possible. So we can take great hope and encouragement in the fact that God is not derailed so easily. Because how many times have we wondered, 
Did I make a mistake with that decision? And what if God wanted me to do this? And now I've blown it. What is God going to do with me now? Because I didn't choose this when I should have. And this story tells us, well, he's going to work with you on your decision. But God still has a plan that is not derailed by your mistakes, church. God has a plan that is not derailed by your mistakes. And in fact, God can redeem the things that are most unsavory about us and bring about his plans in spite of those things. And it reminds me of the people that Jesus surrounded himself with while he was here on earth, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, all kinds of sinners, people who had made the wrong choices over and over and over and over again. And those are the people that Jesus loves being around. And isn't this, church, the great story of redemption? That God came to earth, Jesus showed up in this place to be around those very people he surrounded himself with. It was not an accident. That Jesus surrounded himself with messy people who knew they were a mess. In fact, some of them might have even been named deceiver, grasper, red and hairy. This is the story that we are a part of, that God sees us in our sin and sent Jesus to become an offering for us, not holding who we are against us, that in our great failure, God wins his greatest victory. And we are allowed to live as those who have overcome their greatest mistakes, not through our own power, but through the power of him who loves us and redeems us and gives us strength. You might think that God can't handle your mess, that you are too messy to be loved, to be redeemed, to feel God's purpose in your life. You might feel that way, but that's not the story of the gospel. It's the story of this world that the things you do will forever be held against you. But that's not the story of the gospel because our story is not about our ability to find the path of God and stay on it at every moment. Or as if what God has planned for us is a straight line that we must find our way back to. Instead, we find that when we go off-road, God is there with us, looking for the moment to redirect us, not back to where we were, but toward the place he wants us to go. And we might branch off again and again and again, but God is constantly guiding us back. God can handle whatever mess you have. There is nothing too big for him. There is nothing too big for him. And in the end, though we may 
mess up and hurt people and even tear our family apart, there is still a way back to the people that God wants us to be. And that, my friends, is a good story. It's a good story. And if God can work his people out through this, then he can do great things with you too. Amen?